0: This morning, I wanted to just uh, cover with you a few things that I feel is very pressing, very necessary, and urgent for us. I'm going to ask Brother Bessui, if you don't mind just bringing that up for me, I appreciate it. Um, I'm pretty visual, I don't know if you are, but so I learn by seeing things, and um, I wanted to just uh, show you a few things too. Now, don't worry about what this says, okay, because this is not what it's about. Thanks, brother. Yeah, I will, I will. So don't worry about this front page now, all right? (laughs) But I wanted to talk to you about God, government, and you. God, government, and you. We have to have a sober perspective which is, in fact, a biblical perspective. And uh, Han, one of the scriptures he read was Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove that what the will of God is. Perfect. It's good. It's acceptable. And in this section of Romans chapter 2, 12, verse 2, we find three characters. That is you renewing your mind, not conforming to the world, and thirdly, God, that He will be pleased and that we will know His will. So we have you, we have God, we have the world system. The Apostle Paul is ensuring that your response to God and your response to this world system would be according to God's will and not according to this worldly pagan culture. The way you view God ought not to be defined by the world, The way you respond to God ought not to be part, it ought not to be birthed out of your culture or your nationality or anything. The way you respond to God is through a scripturally renewed mind. That is how we respond to God. Now, he also says, but do not be conformed to the world. In other words, the way I respond to this world system is also not rooted in this current culture. I don't respond to the the world on their terms. I respond to the world on God's terms. Amen? Amen. The reason I obey authorities is because God said so. He said to. Right? So Paul is saying don't fashion yourself and your decisions according to the culture around you, but fashion yourself and your decisions according to God's culture and Scripture. Do not relate to the world around you in a way that is acceptable to the world. As a matter of fact, since you're going to be relating to the world, not on their premise, but on God's, they aren't going to necessarily be happy with you, period. Jesus said, they hated me, they'll hate you. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. As a matter of fact, He said He gave us these two gifts. The first is to believe. In other words, He gave us the gift of faith. And then secondly, to suffer. The capacity to suffer. The capacity to not be liked. How many of you are okay with not being liked? Let me see. How many of you are lying right now? (laughs) Come on, let me see. Seriously. How many of you are committed to not care about being liked? Right? Okay, good. How many of you are really vested in the idea that God is smiling on you? Yeah? Amen. You see, in essence, a renewed mind means God is smiling at me. That's where I live, even while the world is screaming at me. That's a renewed mind. I thought That was actually probably one of the better explanations I thought about that verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. I've heard it taught so many ways. But it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of a mind. Your transformation happens because you no longer think the same way. You are transformed when you just no longer see value in what the world values, but you now value what God values. This is the number one sign. Not the number one sign. This is one of the greatest marks of a person who truly got saved. The value system changes. What used to matter to them no longer matters that much. And what they used to trivialize now suddenly is big to them. This is a sign that they've become a new creature in Christ. So, in essence, God is saying a renewed mind means I live towards God's smile no matter how loud the world is screaming. See, we're living in a time where boundaries are blurred. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, Many ways, boundaries are blurred, but people with God-ordained authorities are relinquishing them, giving them up Instead of standing up for what they should stand up for, they remain seated because they'd rather be loved by the world than be shouted out, shouted at. So people with God ordained authority are are relinquishing those authorities and their duties, and others with zero jurisdiction in certain areas of life are starting to call the shots. We're going like, okay, yeah, whatever you want. individuals believe they have the right to control and even force others to comply to their wishes. Morally superior, so they think, demanding that you line up with what they view to be valuable. So in short, individuals with zero jurisdiction over you are now, over your personal and private lives, are now establishing themselves as authorities over you. And just like the concept of love has been redefined, watch this. You know love no longer means what love means, right? Love is now a feeling, it's no longer a sacrifice. God's definition of love is Jesus hanging on a cross for you. Man's feeling of love is you doing whatever makes him feel good. And if you don't, you ain't loving. And then they go and like, yeah, what would Jesus do? He would love me, wouldn't he? <laughs> Just like the concept of love has been redefined, the concept of authority currently is being redefined by this generation. To some, being in authority means they get to make up the laws as they go along and then to lord those laws over you and everybody else immediately. Others view authority as a punching bag. If there's there's an authority, it must be disrespected. Neither of those are right. Most people in our culture have very low view of authority, or the concept of authority. But the Bible says very clearly that all authority is from God. And some authority God raises up as judgment over those people that they rule over. Saul was God's judgment on Israel. Pharaoh was God's judgment on a rebellious nation, Israel. God did that. The Bible says He did that. It says, when the righteous rule, people rejoice. To some, being an authority means they get to make up the laws and you get to obey. Others use it as a punching bag, disrespect it. Then there is the anarchist... (laughs) who believes there should be no laws at all. They're only a law unto themselves. Whatever works for them, that's fine. But the problem with redefining authority, and this is why we have to look at it, the problem with redefining authority and its purpose is this. Since God is the ultimate authority, to redefine authority is to, again, redefine God. Just like to redefine love is to redefine God because God is love. Right? So, for us to tamper with what the Bible defines it to be is for us to create idols. We create idols by tampering with the authorities God has already established. So, the truth is, the way a person relates to God. Is clearly seen by the way a person relates to the authorities God has set up. It's not a nice thing to hear, is it? See, the result of a twisted and redefined view of authority is devastating. For a person who has a convoluted idea of authority, if they have a twisted view, And a redefined view of authority, it's it's devastating to their lives because it causes them to not comply with, with those that they should comply with and to comply with those they should not comply with. And they don't know the difference. Why? Because their perspective of authority has been marred, tainted, and it's like a windshield with no windshield wipers, going through a mud storm. It is like the high school kid that is simply not complying with his teacher. He's just not going to do the curriculum. He's not going to participate at all. But as soon as the rebellious classmate gets up to no good, this guy goes like, Hey, can I join you? (laughs) So the question is, Do you comply when you should not? Or do you not comply when you should? The only way to answer that question accurately and to know when to comply, when not to comply, is to go to Scriptures. Because the authorities that we ought to listen to or ignore was established by God. It's almost like here. Like if I start teaching you something that is contrary to Scriptures, immediately, I'm ignored. I should be ignored and not complied to. Correct? So here is a law written. And I am bound to only teach from it. And you are called by God to obey as long as the teaching is from it. It's almost like a constitution. Right? End of the message. (laughs) Everybody answers to somebody. And the question is, who's breaking the law? That's the question. But you don't break the law. You know when to comply, when not to comply with Scriptures, with what you hear. People teach from Scriptures. Let me say it that way. As a matter of fact, there's a huge connection between how the way we relate to earthy authorities that reveals there's a connection there to how I view, revere, and serve God. Huge connection. We we don't really make that connection a lot, but we really should because suddenly we will serve authorities accurately in fear. Whether it be to comply or to not comply, whether it be to submit or to warn. But we will serve authorities the way God has called us to serve authorities. Because that is a sign of my relationship with God. Watch this. Wives, submit to your husbands, how? As unto the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands, your earthly authorities, as unto the Lord. There's a connection. Ephesians five twenty-two, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Ephesians six one. Every person is to subject, is subject to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Romans 13, 1. submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Ah, let me say, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. One Peter two thirteen. It says, slaves, obey those who are human masters in everything. Obey those who are your human masters in everything. Not with eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Watch this. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Colossians 3, 22, 23. There is a very clear-cut connection between my fear for God playing out in the way I respond to authorities in this world. So the way we relate to earthly authorities reflect how we relate to God. Period I cannot say that I, I cannot say that I'm completely submitted to God and a complete rebel in life. There's no such thing. You cannot be completely out of hand, anti-authority, anti-law, anarchist, submitted to Christ. There's no such thing. Because the way wives relate to their husbands is really the way they relate to the Lord. The way children relate to their parents is the way they relate to the Lord. The way every single one of us relate to our governing authorities shows that we know that positions of authority are from God. He established those. Now consider how understanding authority allows us to have greater faith. There's a tremendous blessing in understanding this. Watch this quick. In Matthew 8 verse 5 through 10 it says this, And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to Him begging Him, and saying, Lord, my servant is, laying, is lying paralyzed at home, terribly tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord. This is the second time this Gentile calls Jesus Lord. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word. Just say the word. Speak the word. Give the command." Make a declaration. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Say it here, he'll be there, healed there. Just speak it. For I, now he's going to explain to Jesus why he asked Jesus to, to do what he asked Jesus to do. What did he ask Jesus to just, don't come to my house when my servant is dying. You just stay right here, say something, and it'll happen there. Here's why I know this is true. He says, For I also am a man under authority, in other words, I have authorities with soldiers under me. In other words, I'm under authority with people under my authority. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Because he understands he has authority. Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those who were following His disciples, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Among all those in Israel, here's the man with the greatest faith. Wow. A very sober idea, understanding, of how authority works. You see, more than anyone, he understood Christ's position, Lord, Lord. And he understood Christ's power to rule. Therefore, just say it because I know you rule. You see, this man's understanding of authority is what enabled him to have the greatest faith in all of Israel. So, we see that our attitude towards authorities is, is is connected with our attitude toward God and that our understanding of authority has a great effect on our faith. Now, Why would it be important for you and I to discuss authority structures here on a Sunday morning instead of on a Wednesday night Bible class? Why don't we rather today study God's heart of love for a hurting world? The world's hurting. Let's talk about how much God loves them and cares for them. Or how to heal from disappointments, because many people are going through disappointments. These things are true. Why don't we talk about the seven reasons why you should be getting baptized? Or maybe the the 120 reasons why you should come to church. (laughs) You know? (laughs) How about the the meaning of life? All these things are very important. Are they most important is the question. How do we know what to focus on? How do I know what to focus on as a pastor? Martin Luther said this, and I quote, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, then I'm not professing Christ. Wow. As elementary as this may sound, this is revolutionary. What he's saying is, even if we are brilliant biblicists and expositors of the whole entire Word of God, we will deny Christ if we are unwilling to apply the lordship of Christ to our immediate issue that we're facing. Many people walk through their whole entire life in this moment not applying the lordship of Christ to their issue. Oh, yeah, Jesus is lord of a history. Oh, yeah, Jesus is lord over the future. But this issue right here, right now, while well, we're not going to be talking about Christianity and the Bible and Christ's lordship over this issue right here, all right, this is, this is something else. Let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about... You see, so what, we do, what, what Luther is saying is people go through their whole entire lives not submitting to the Lordship of Christ, but claiming and declaring that He's Lord of the past and Lord of the future, but not Lord of the present. What are we facing right now is the question. And are we, are we giving ourselves to Christ's Lordship right now? That's the question. And if we're not, then He's not Lord. If He's not Lord right now, He's not Lord. No matter how many times you declare that He was Lord and He will be Lord, but He's not Lord if He's not Lord right now over this issue that we're facing. And to say that He's Lord means that actually He's the ultimate authority that I ascribe to. I may have to, I may have to duck and dive a few in order to obey, but that's why He said He'll give us the gift for suffering. Why is this important? Because He's either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. And this is important for our day and age because yesterday's wars, today's wars, and tomorrow's wars in this world, in this culture, physical and in every way, is over one single issue. Do you know what that issue is? Lordship. Lordship. Who gets to rule right here, right now? Who is an authority right here, right now over this issue? Who gets to control this moment? There is no argument that's not warring for this moment, for control over this moment. That's why this is important. That is why understanding divinely ordained authority structure is so important because we have to know when to comply and when not to. Because without knowing God's will in this matter, without renewing our minds on this matter, it will leave us not knowing God's will in this moment. So let's explore just a few things as we keep developing what we started two weeks ago. God, government, and you. The first question is, Which are the authority structures established by God? Which are the authority structures established by God? Now, somebody goes, God's kingdom. You're right. But the question is, which authority structures did God ordain in this world? Let me do this. If you were here on Wednesday... You would have understood that. All right. (laughs) Anyway, got distracted. The authorities that God ordained, or the authority structures and the spheres of authority, is number one, self-government. Number two, familial government or family government. Number three, church government. And then finally, (coughs) civil government. The question, and we find all four of those authority structures, or those spheres of authority, has, is inside the Scripture very well explained, and their jurisdictions are well articulated. They have boundaries. Their authority is limited. Nobody is sovereign but God. Okay? Not one of these authority structures gets to call the shots for everyone. <clears throat> Number two, we have to ask the question, how do authorities, these authorities, exercise their authority? So if God gives them, gives self, authority, that's assumed, therefore, that God's given them responsibilities to have authority over. And what happens is we oftentimes if we have a bad supervisor on the job, we'll find them giving us duties and jobs, responsibilities, but not the authority necessary to execute them. God's not like that. When He gives you responsibility, He gives you the authority to execute the responsibility, right? So, how or what is given to these authorities to exercise their authority that they were given? Well, to self-government, that's you, God has given a conscience. Your conscience either strokes you or whips you into shape. To the family, God gives the rod to exercise authority. To the church, God gives the keys to the kingdom, keys to the kingdom, church is the gate. It's the body of Christ. He gives the keys to the kingdom. Whatever the church binds will be bound. Whatever the church loosens will be loosened. The church has the keys to the kingdom. Keys unlock doors. Keys unlock gates so people can come in to the kingdom. This is why there isn't a more important you might say Jacques because you're the pastor. Look I'm talking about the universal church of Jesus Christ. Is there's nothing more important on the face of the earth. There's no governmental authority structure that's more important than the church because the church has these keys given to them by Jesus to go into all the world and teach the nations to obey, to teach the nations to obey Jesus, our ultimate authority. So, who teaches who? The government, the church, or the church of the government? That's the question. What did Jesus say? You go to the nations, and you teach them to obey Christ, my commands. But the church has the keys that unlocks the door for people to come into the kingdom. The church has the authority, the right, to serve or to baptize the sacraments, to baptize and to serve communion. But the church also has the right to say, no, not to you. God has given to the church a means to exercise authority called excommunication. In other words, if somebody is going to be drinking the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of the sins they are unwilling to repent for, the church ought to take that away and say, no, you can't do that. Because if you keep doing that, it leads to you even dying young. So the authority of the church is just way beyond what's ever been taught and what we understand here in the West. Because in the West, everybody's kind of got this gospel like, well, the church is not a building. I'm the church. And so they can just kind of do whatever they want. Never submit to anyone. Never serve anyone. Never participate in anything. They call the shots because they, the authority of the church, is not. Why? Because they are the church. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. Orthodoxy has it right. So, to self, God gives a conscience to exercise authority. To the family, God gives the rod to exercise authority. Take back your authority, family. To the church, God gives the authority. He gives them the keys to the kingdom, the sacraments, and the means of excommunication. To civil government, God gives what? The sword, the instrument of death. Today we don't use swords to, to end somebody's life. We use, you know, electric chair or whatever it is they use. But it's been given to the government by God Himself. But for the purpose of something. For the purpose of punishing the evildoer, why must the evildoer be punished? Because he needs to keep the innocent safe. And those ought to never get messed up, right? <laughs> where, where the innocent is getting punished and everybody else is getting out of jail. Yeah, that's, that wasn't the goal. That wasn't the goal. There's even a better question that I would like to ask, is how are divinely ordained governments a reflection of God? Because God exercises His ultimate authority through delegated authorities. Check it out. The ultimate authority, God, exercises in the earth His authority through delegated authorities, self, family, church, government. But how does this happen? Every authority ought to reflect God in a primary way. To self, the individual, is to, he is to reflect God's holiness. Why? Because in 1 Peter 1 verse 16 it says, God commands, be holy, you be holy. Every individual, you be holy because I'm holy. That is how self-government reflects the glory of God. How does family reflect the glory of God? In three ways. Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives. How? Like Christ loved the church. In the family, the love of God is to be reflected by the way, the husband gives himself to the wife sacrificially. In the family, the family government is supposed to reflect God by providing for family members. 1 Timothy 5.8 He who does not provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. You do not reflect the glory of God. Stay-at-home dad, stay-at-home dads, quit it. Quit it. If you're a minister and you're a stay-at-home dad, shame on you. You provide for your family. And if you don't, the Bible says you're worse than an unbeliever. When I say minister, I was saying lay minister. Another way a family government reflects the glory of God is through God's discipline, Hebrews 12, that God disciplines those He loves just like the Father disciplines His Son because He loves His Son. How does the church reflect the glory of God? It reflects God's truth. How? In 1 Timothy 3.15 it says that the church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and ground of God's truth. That's why, you know, when you come to church, you ought to really truthfully come to church with, you know, with a helmet on. <laughs> because the truth, is, truth is what it has, is like sharp-edged sword, right? Double-edged sword that's sharp. It's, it's always cutting away the thoughts I ought not to have, the feelings I shouldn't be giving myself to. It's cutting away the deceptions that I have. It's cutting away all those things and leaves me free it leaves me free free to do what sin no free to worship God without all these things that's attached itself to me all this darkness I walk in all these demons hanging off of me the truth is what slices those things away it might hurt for a little bit but you walk away free so that's what church is really about is to reflect God's truth. So we have self reflecting God's holiness, family, government reflecting God's love, God's provision, God's discipline. The church government reflects God's truth, and then civil civil government reflects what? God's wrath. It actually says it. <laughs> it reflects the wrath of God. Romans chapter thirteen verse four. He did he. These governmental officials are in fact God's servants. God's servants. That's why God gave him the sword to bring the wrath of God upon that evildoer for the sake of God's glory. So we've learned which are all the established authorities that God has established. And I must say this, that there are more authority structures than this. Uh, Let me say there are more authorities than this, but there are only four authority structures. All other authorities, your boss on the job or the principal at a school, all those different authorities uh, are subcategories to what has been placed here. For instance, I'll give you an example. Watch this. There's a subcategory called education. There's a principal. This principal is an authority. Is that principal a subcategory to which one of these four? Let me ask family. Where is this principle suddenly, where is this principle currently submitting himself or herself to? The government. And society does not function when lines have been blurred, when the one that's responsible for a specific specific duty abdicates their responsibility and gives it to somebody else, there's never peace. But that's not just the only. I mean, there are many. And us as a church and the church at large need to have clarity as to what did God mean when He ordained authority in this world? You see, when all four of these authority structures are faithfully functional within their own jurisdictions is when a society will operate in its highest and most effective level. Imagine a world where Individuals successfully practice self-control by means of conscience. Imagine a world where it's not the community's fault. It's not the parents' fault for their crimes. They have self-control. Imagine a world with that. Imagine a world where the family unit is complete. each by a very present father figure, every family unit, present father figure, a head of the home and a mom, wholly committed to his wife and his children to care for them the way the Bible tells them to. Imagine that kind of world. Imagine a world where all churches are run by God-fearing shepherds. Can you imagine that? Where they are faithfully representing their chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, their ultimate authority. Because I'm not... I only have something that was delegated to me, given to me, and I can also be unfaithful with, with, with what was given to me, is when I start telling you things my chief shepherd never said, or when I stop telling you things my chief, chief shepherd, shepherd actually said. You got what I'm saying. Imagine a world, churches set up everywhere, being faithful to the duties within their jurisdiction. Imagine a world where a government faithfully punishes the evildoer and so protects the innocent from harm. This is a world where God's delegated authority will project His glory. This is God's wise counsel, His unfailing model for healthy societies. It doesn't come any other way. It doesn't come through Marxism. It doesn't come through anything. It doesn't come through social programs. It comes through everybody being faithful to that which God has given them within their jurisdiction and stay in your lane, right? Stay in your lane. When all four of these authorities do it, the world heals. The world heals. Tired of hearing secular bands singing about healing the world. Did I just come across that song for the first time? Is that an old song? <laughs> There's other way to heal the world. The fourth question is what is the function of self-government? What is the function of self-government? You know, when we talk about self-government, we're not referring to autonomy. Autonomy is when somebody is self-driving. Automotive. We're not referring to autonomy, where the individual is the law unto himself, but a person who exercises self-control. That's what we talk about self-government. Self-control, according to God's law and the law of the land. You see, to exercise self-control or self-governance is when a person has enough self-control to not give himself to the enticements of his own flesh. That's what it means to govern self. Um, You know, when when I saw that accident happening downtown, when my wife and I took Andrew um, and Clarishka out downtown to show them, an accident happened before. Is this guy was so angry at the cab driver that hit him, he completely lost it. Right? He, he, he just ran over there and he started punching this, this, this cab driver. But you know what it's like because you've seen other, you've never done this, but you've seen other people do this, right? You lose self-control. The Bible says in James 1, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own fleshly lusts. It is this flesh that entices me to do the wrong thing. That's called temptation. But it is self-governance or self-control that curbs that issue. And self-control happens to be what? A fruit of the Spirit of God. (laughs) Self-control comes to the person or he's able to practice self-control because he's filled with the Spirit of God, 2 Timothy 1, 7. The person who denies self-control is the person who denies responsibility that was given to them. And they deny responsibility for their own actions. That is the person who who hands over self-governance. He says, I'm not going to govern, you govern. Do you know that every single time you blame somebody for something you did, you're giving them the authority God originally gave you. Think about it. How do I hand my self governance over to somebody else? How has this happened where everybody is taking responsibilities that are not theirs and are not taking responsibilities that are theirs? And the family throws responsibility upon the government. The government wasn't supposed to carry. Therefore, they cannot juggle that because they will drop the ball. It wasn't, they weren't made for it. single moms in the homes have responsibilities she should never have had. Why do you think our society is so broken? So the question is, how how do I surrender my self-governance? I blame somebody. I blame society for the crime I committed. That worked well. He just gave his authority away to another, but if that person says, oh, I'll take, I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take all of, all of your guilt, I'll take all of your guilt, now do what I tell you, that's what happens there. Usually when a, when a sinner does not practice self-governance is when that sinner either evades, of course, or he blames, for instance, Cain killed his brother and then pretended to not know where his brother was, he's like, am I my brother's keeper? How am I supposed to know where he is? When Adam and Eve fell into sin, Adam blamed God, and he blamed Eve for his sin. He says, God, it's that woman you gave me. It's that woman you gave me. I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) It's not me. Innocent, look. It's all you. Eve then goes and blames the snake for her sins. Everybody's quick to hand over government to somebody else or authority. Let me say it that way. Adam and Eve's story proves to us something else that I think is fascinating. But do you realize that Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden? They lived in perfect circumstances, and they still handed the authority over. They still sinned. My point here is that the sinner, not the community, is guilty before God because that person is not guilty. He didn't commit a crime because of his environment. He committed a crime because he... Didn't govern himself. He did not practice self-control. He did not obey when he should have obeyed. It's not society's fault because not even the Garden of Eden stopped people from doing these kind of things. Right? Adam and Eve, he's my federal head, your federal head. Adam represented you and I accurately. A lot of people go like, yeah, I'm in this state because Adam sinned. No, no, no. Adam sinned because he... He represented what you would do had you been there. If you were in the garden, you would have done exactly what Adam did. And all the women said, yes, men, you did. I'm saying also Eve too. (laughs) (laughs) The criminal, not society, the criminal is guilty before God for their their lack of self-governance, for the lack of self-control. Romans chapter 14 verse 12 says this, So then each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Every person individually will answer to God for what they did in life. Number five, what is the the function of family government? Family government. Well, the family is the central building block of Western civilization. Now, watch this. Before, Before there was a church, there was a family. Before there was a government, there was a family. Family government came after... Self-government. Adam was given self-government. And then after that, the family got given government, a government authority. And last time we, when we talked about this, we discussed that, this, um, th- that the father is the head of the house and his jurisdiction presides over food. The Bible says over warmth. Remember the word was warmth which includes clothing and housing. That's the father's responsibility. He has authority to govern over that. He also has authority to govern over well-being, which includes medical. It is his responsibility. It is within his jurisdiction. He will be held accountable before God for what God gave him. Even if the government takes it out of his hands, he's responsible before God and also education. I am responsible to feed my kids, keep them warm, give them a house, their medical, and also their education, which includes their culture. Today, I want to end by looking at something very interesting. In Ephesians 6 verse 4, we're going to read this, but I want you to keep in mind with the verse that we started. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Now do not be conformed to this world system or this culture, but be transformed. How? How? By the renewing of your mind. By seeing things the way God laid them out. By living the life that God has called us to live. In Ephesians 6 verse 4 now, another verse, it says, and ye fathers, talking to the father, the head of the house, provoke not your children to wrath. In other words, don't anger your children. And you think that this next is, it's just like a throwaway sentence. It's almost like he needed to just fill these two lines. And he was like, okay, well, don't, don't provoke your children to wrath. And then, uh, anyway, I'm just you know, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, okay? Period. It's not like that. This, it's an amazing thing how God wrote the Scriptures. I mean, it is so compact. You can almost spend, there's a, there's a man that wrote three volumes on the word admonition. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because that word admonition, Paul very, very specifically used because the church at Ephesus, which was a small group of people in a very pagan world, in a pagan culture, he was, he was giving them something to do in their families. And we have to find out what that was. Now, in, the, in, the, in, the, in their culture at the time, <clears throat> the Greeks... saw themselves as thinkers, philosophers, inventors. They saw themselves very clearly as superior human beings. They wanted to create this superior nation with these superior people that have higher knowledge and understanding and insight that's why they would debate daily. And this was their culture. Art and architecture. Architecture. I mean, their engineering. All, all of, I mean, these Greeks were something else. And they were big on educating. And the word that, that is all-encompassing in that view, or that worldview, you might call that philosophy of we want to be elevated as humanists, because that's where that comes from. That idea there is all encapsulated in this word, admonition. Admonition. The word admonition is the word padea in Greek. Padeia. So here Paul says, to all the fathers in Ephesus, in the church in Ephesus, he says, You fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Don't make them angry. But bring them up instead in the nurture and the padea of the Lord. And they go like, whoa, that was huge. Wait a minute. We understand padeia. Humanism. Elevating thought. Educating minds. Developing the world. Becoming superior unique. Whether it be architectural sports, I mean, these people were something else. You know what? The Greeks, they still believe all that stuff. <laughs> Just kidding, Kristen. I'm <laughs> not that Greek. The original Greek. I know the original Greek. <laughs> So when Paul says, raise them in the nurture and the padea of the Lord, wait a minute, Paul, we're a handful of people. We live in a massive city, the most developed city in the, you know, one of the most developed cities in the world. And you just use their word for culture, their word for philosophy, and their word, their... Word for world, their understanding, their worldview, you use that that drives them, and you said, raise my son up and my daughter up in that word, but in the Lord. In the Lord. You see, it is the Father's responsibility to raise His children up in the padea of God, not the world in the culture of God, not in the culture of the world. You see, the word Padea, today we have a word that closely resembles it. It's the word inculturate, inculturated, inculturate, or inculturation, which means to change, raise your children up in the nurture and in the change or the modification, or the adaption, or the behavior, or the ideas, or the philosophy, or the worldview of the Lord. But yet, we send our kids to be raised in the padeya of the world. we got to work, and we just work like everybody else, in the padea of, in the same way, with the same attitude, but here we find that there is a culture of the of the kingdom of god kingdom culture god's kingdom has a culture it's a culture of peace it's a culture of love it's a culture of jovialness just joy just happy yeah but we're only a handful in the middle of a complete pagan world yeah we're a seed what can i say we're a seed To educate and to train them in biblical culture or in scriptural culture or in biblical worldview or into scriptural ideologies is what God gave, that responsibility God gave specifically to who? Let me read it to you again, Ephesians 6 4. And ye fathers, it is your job, it is my job. Now, let me just say this that if, and I'll close with a statement, if this is what God wants. For, his, for, for my children. It's obvious that God wants that for me too. He wants it for you. There's a culture in this room that doesn't exist out there. There's a worldview in this room that does not exist out there. There's an understanding in this room and in all other rooms that we combine, we, we, together we make up the body of Christ universally, that, that we think differently. I don't riot, I don't get violent, doesn't mean I comply, it's just, I just don't, I don't do the wrong thing, not on this side and not on that side, because I serve God, and that's part of a worldview, that's, that's part of a worldview, world because remember, Jesus, not Caesar, is king, Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father God, that we aren't those who declare that Jesus is Lord over the history and Jesus is Lord over the future, but we, we do not have a sense of making him Lord over this moment we stand in here right now facing the issues we faced with right now. Jesus is Lord, and you have called me God. You've called all of us to the padea of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we will be respectful. Help us, God, to have self-governance. Help us, God, to respond the way we should respond every time. As you helped Daniel respond before, during, and after the lion's den. As you helped Paul respond before, during, and after prison as you helped Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond before, during, and after the fire furnace. God, I pray that you help us know what to care for, what to care about, and what not to care about. Help us be fruitful in this life and always project your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.